And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This morning we will come to the conclusion of our series on uh, marriage and family life. And we're going to do that <clears throat> looking at verses 1 through 9 of 1 Corinthians 7. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and the wife likewise to her husband. The, wife does not have, the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. And in the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent for a season so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all men were as I am. And the important qualification here is that Paul was a single man at this time. Okay, So he was living a celibate lifestyle, so that's an important just aside. I wish that all men were as I am, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, and another has that. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The obvious topic of this passage of Scripture is the physical relationship between a husband and wife. This letter is written to a church by Paul in a city called Corinth. It was a major Roman city in Paul's time, located at the center of what we know as the modern island or nation of Greece. We might describe this city by saying that it was intellectually astute, financially prosperous, and yet morally corrupt. And when you read that definition, you should say to yourself, that sounds familiar, strangely familiar, like the country that you and I live in today. One of the major features of this ancient city was situated on a hill about approximately 500 feet above the city. There was a temple there to the goddess called Aphrodite. We get our word aphrodisiac from that, okay? So it obviously was a temple that celebrated sexuality, but it did it in a very perverse way. Some historians estimate that there were upwards of a thousand prostitutes that lived at that temple, and the mode of worship was a physical intimate relationship with one of those prostitutes at the temple. Now, where we live today, that sounds horrific. Okay, but in the ancient Roman world, that was somewhat normative, and that was the setting in which the early church is growing and rising up. And Paul writes to them because he knows they live in a very complex, confusing situation. And as you've read, if you've read through the book of 1 Corinthians, you know this. You know that that sexual sin has crept into the church. Something that is also true in the church in America today. And so as Paul writes, he's seeking to protect the church from this pervasive sense of immorality that is present. What Paul has to say to the church in Corinth 
is very much, I believe, what Paul would say to us and what God would say to us today, to the people of the United States and also to much of people that live in the West. If you kind of study culture a little bit, you'll find that much of the Western world has drifted for, towards a fairly permissive and pervasive sexual immorality. Okay, and so that very little is taboo in that realm. Much is taboo in many realms, but very little is taboo in the realm of sexuality. Western culture sees much as offensive and wrong, but on the highway of human sexuality, we have removed the guardrails and the speed limit signs that God gave to protect us in this realm. The results have been devastating. Our culture is increasingly permissive and promiscuous. The sad result is that marriage and family are redefined, and in that redefinition, they suffer a downgrade, a loss of value and preciousness. The simple truth from Scripture is this. Culture cannot be healthy and strong without strong building blocks, i.e. solid, godly marriages and families. And these cannot be strong without a solid, biblically-based view of sexual morality. And so my aim this morning from this passage of Scripture is to help us to, to understand how to fulfill verse 20 of chapter 6. And I want you to look at this. At the end of verse 20 of chapter 6, Paul gives this directive. He says, therefore, honor God with your body. Okay? Now, previous to that, what do you find? You find a discussion about immorality and how it has become pervasive in the context of culture and church life in Corinth. And what Paul's trying to do for the church in Corinth is this, to help cause them and help them to understand the vital importance of understanding a biblical morality. It, the, the, the vitalness of that for Christian living, particularly in a city or in a country like you and I have been called to God by God to live in. Now, what I want us to see is this. How do we honor God with our body? Okay, that becomes the question. Now, in what ways will this discussion this morning be important? Okay, I want to give you three ways in which I think this matters for us as a church family, living in the culture we live in. First of all, I believe it's important for families. Paul's teaching on sexuality is foundational to strong families. Strong families are foundational to strong churches. Strong churches are foundational to strong cultures. Okay, so this, what seems to be a very basic, instinctive relationship. In the Bible, is not, it is not downgraded. Instead, it is exalted and protected. And the question is, why? And I think in many ways it is because of the importance of family and the role that sexuality plays in family relationships. Secondly, I believe a discussion about this is vital for our young people. And I, I approach this from two angles in my mind. Okay, from one angle, I realize... That is, it is important for us as parents to talk to our kids about this, but often we don't know what to say to them. We're not as biblically informed as we ought to be on this topic, so the purpose for covering off on this topic is to realize that there's truth that we can be passing on to the next generation. It's important for us to pass it on to them, but it is also important for us to confront the morally uncertain, disoriented, and confused age that our children are growing up in, in terms of morality. It is a mess in terms of morality out there. If you talk to your kids about the discussions at high school, uh, on Facebook, if you talk to them about the discussions that take place in the, in the college environment, in college dormitories, it, folks, it's a mess. It is much worse than most of us realize. 
Okay, and so I, I think it's important that we, we, we deal with this topic, that we face it, because our young people face immense pressure. And as Christians, what do we want them to know? We want them to know that there is hope for a godly understanding of sexual morality. And there is a way forward that honors God and will bring joy rather than guilt into their lives. It is meant to be protective for them. And thirdly, it is important so that we can glorify God. And I think this is where Paul's going at the end of chapter 6, verse 20. Therefore, glorify God with your body, which is God's. He purchased your life when He saved you. And He also purchased your body, redeemed every part of you, so that you could live for His glory. And so, as we move into this text, those are the concerns. To realize that sex is not simply a self-expression And it is not simply for personal pleasure. It is about the glory of God in every area. And so let's move through this text and look at the importance of this topic. I want to start by looking at verses 15 through 16 of chapter 6. Because I I want you to get a sense of the connection between sexuality and who you are. Okay, the question becomes this. Does my... Physical life relate to my spiritual life. Okay, does it affect me at the core of who I am? Or are they separate things? In other words, can I keep my sexual experiences as a separate part of my life that won't affect my judgment and the rest of my life in other areas? Okay, can you make this kind of neat compartment that is my life and then sexuality is compartmentalized off to the side? It doesn't really affect this. It's purely a biological experience. Okay, because that's what the world we live in says. Okay, and we need to fight against it. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is, listen to this, one with her in body. There is some type of permanent relationship that is created in the experience of sexual intimacy. For it is said, the two become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Now folks, do you see the exchange? What is Paul saying? Paul's saying you can't separate your physical intimacy from who you are. Sexuality affects us at the deepest level of our experience as human beings. And I think it's important that we just kind of put that out there as a very important observation. Okay, it's not something separate from, it is part of who we are. Now, as Paul begins this discussion, he, he, he gives out a personal preference. Okay, and the personal preference is for celibacy or singleness. Okay, and he kind of lays it out there, and you're kind of wondering, where's he going with that? What is, why does he throw that out there? Okay, now, here, here's the argument, okay? The argument from the text is that Paul has a preference regarding being single for a very specific reason and in a very specific circumstance. Verse 26 of chapter 7, he says this, because of the present crisis, okay, so there was... Something going on in the church in Corinth that made it extremely difficult to be a Christian. And in that, because of that difficulty, it was preferable to be single. However, Paul, and, and, and real quickly, look at verse 32 and 34, because Paul elaborates on this. He said, I would like you to be free from concern 
This is why he prefers singleness in that setting. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world and how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. Okay? So Paul has a preference for singleness, but that preference for singleness is arising out of a unique set of circumstances and, verse 7, out of unique gifting that the Apostle Paul has in that way. And he's acknowledging that there are various people within the body of Christ who have that gift from God. It's not a gift that I have. God called me to be a married man. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, I have a preference for singleness, but he's going to give this nod to say something like this. This singleness is an exception. Verse 7, it is a gift from God. What is the norm, Paul? That's the question that would come up after verse 1, right? If it's good that, that a man should marry, what is the norm? Paul says this, but since there is so much immorality, there is so much of a tendency in our flesh sexually to express that sexuality, what is Paul saying? It's better to move into the realm of marriage. It is a God-given context in which the gift of sexuality is protected by God. Now, here's the one qualification that comes up in verse 39 of chapter 7. It says, if you're a Christian and you're going to move into a married relationship, that marriage needs to be, Paul says in verse 27, in the Lord. So if you're here this morning and you're a believer and you say, okay, I don't believe that God has given me the gift of singleness, of celibacy, therefore abstinence, because Paul's going to tie these things together. If God calls you to singleness, he has also called you to abstinence. If he's called you to marriage, he's called you to marriage and to sexual intimacy in that context. Okay, there's two options that Paul's putting on the table here. He says, here's my preference because of my circumstances. But normatively, people are going to get married. And in that context of marriage, they are to find a place where they fulfill their sexual desires and find a mutual pleasure in that relationship. Okay? So, let's look at some observations then moving through this text. Number one is this. Marriage is the God-given context for sexual fulfillment. Okay, but since there is so much sexual immorality, verse 2, each should have his own wife and each woman should have her own husband. Now, it's fascinating what Paul does here, right? Because in that very brief statement, each man having his own wife, each wife having her own husband, what has he done? He's given you a clear, structured definition of what marriage very simply is. Okay, that is to say this, it is between a man and a woman, that is, it is heterosexual, it is monogamous, one man united with one woman, and it is permanent. Okay, so that's the, if you're kind of saying, okay, what's the groundwork that Paul starts to build on? That marriage is the God-given context for sexual intimacy. Okay, that's the first truth that he lays out. Let's move on then to verse 3. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. And I want you to notice something. In this verse, what is Paul doing? Paul's reversing the, the kind of the normative presuppositions of the Roman world. In the Roman world, the wife was saw, seen as property. An additional woman on the side was fully acceptable so that the man's needs could be met. That was what was normative. So Paul is not broadcasting 
a, a restrictive view of sexuality. What is he doing? He's promoting a protective view of sexuality. All right? And that it is to be a, a, a setting in the context of marriage that brings mutual pleasure and protects rather than abuses the marital relationship. Now, in verse 3, he talks about the physical relationship between a husband and wife as a thing that should be fulfilled. And then that should fulfill is applied in both ways. Between the man and the woman and between the woman and the wife, there is, and the word I want to use here is there is an ought to or an obligation that emerges. Okay? An ought to or an obligation in regards to physical intimacy that is present in the context of marriage. Now, what does that say? Okay, here's what it says. It says that the physical relationship between a husband and wife is not an optional experience in marriage, nor is it slavish driven by demand. Okay? In both cases, verse 3 and verse 4, you're going to find that it is a mutual experience. There is a reciprocation, not a demand, not a command, but rather a mutual sharing in this relationship. Therefore, what is the act of marriage? The act of marriage is an act of obedience before God, and it is the enjoyment of a gift from Him. Okay, and I think kind of the thrust here is this. Marriage and physical intimacy are bound together by God by design. And He has for that a very unique purpose that starts to work its way out in the broader picture of this passage of Scripture. So it is an act of obedience. It is about giving and not getting. Okay, and I want you to notice how this, this is stated. Because in, in, in the realm of sexuality taken out of the God-given context, what is it all about? It is all about getting what I want. It's all about seeking personal fulfillment, personal pleasure, personal satisfaction. That's what it's all about. In the context of marriage, what is it? It's, it's a, a woman who freely gives herself to her husband. It's a husband who freely gives himself to his wife, not out of slavish demand but out of delight in the pattern that God has established for this relationship in the context of marriage. It is about giving and not getting in the God-given design. So this physical intimacy is to be normative, and I think I, can, I think I can come out of this text saying something like this. It is to be a regular experience between a husband and wife. It's part of their relationship by God's design for God's purposes. Okay, so that's uh, something else to establish. Now, from this text, then, I think you can see something start to emerge. You can see that the pursuit of sexual fulfillment through prostitution, through pornography, okay, through various avenues that are outside of the realm of marriage, you can start to see why they are so devastating. Okay, because what are they about? They're about pleasing one's own desires outside of the God-established boundaries, which means somebody is being taken advantage of. It's not a reciprocal relationship. It's not a permanent relationship. It's not a giving relationship. It's a place where people get. Okay, and so one of the tests you can apply to sexuality is this. Is this about me getting what I want? Or is it about me taking the gifts that God has given to me to find pleasure and fulfillment in a mate that I am committed to for life. All right, that's the biblical pattern. That's the biblical norm. And I think one of the things that we have to say at this point is this. Look, we can bash all of the distortions that are out there. And I think at some level, the church ought to be very clear in these areas. 
Speak the truth on sexuality. Speak the truth about pornography. Speak the truth about these various areas where there is, is, is just, just a, a serious brokenness in our world. But ask yourself this question. What's the best way for us to really make a difference? You know what I believe it is? I believe it is to honor this God-given directive and command. Okay, to speak to the distortion by upholding the truth about marriage. Okay, by loving your marriage relationship and honoring God through it in every way. So the Christians don't always have to be known as the people that attack things. And there's things that we clearly should speak to. And I'm not saying we don't, but I'm saying do that speaking through your life. Do that speaking through how you as a husband and a wife relate to each other. Gladly embrace God's design in the context of your marriage. Verse 4. The wife does not belong, or the wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. It's a fascinating verse. Because what is Paul, what is, what is, uh, what is Paul doing? Well, I think he's tying back up to the end of chapter 6, right? Honor God with your body. Okay? So there is a connection between physical intimacy and pleasure and satisfaction and the physical body that you and I live in. Now, if in the ancient Roman world, the wife was seen as the husband's property, and that's the historical view. Okay, it was true in the, in, in, in the uh, first century Judaism. There was a very downgraded view of woman. In Rome, it was a very slavish view of woman that they existed for the man's pleasure. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. In our culture, that is not far from where a lot of men end up. Okay? And I think it's important that sometimes we just say that. It, it becomes about our, our desires and our pleasures. What is Paul saying here? In the context of marriage, Tim Hoff belongs to Ruth Hoff, and Ruth Hoff belongs to Tim Hoff. And God says that he breaks it down in detail. Her body belongs to you, your body belongs to her. Okay, now what is he saying? He's saying that in the context of seeking pleasure in the realm of sexuality, it is about giving to each other to bring joy and delight. It is about serving each other. It's not about what can I get out of this experience. There is a responsibility that is present in this exchange, this mutual exchange, which was revolutionary in the Roman world. In this realm, the man is not a boss. He is a partner with his wife. They are joined together, seeking mutual fulfillment and pleasure and satisfaction for the glory of God. This giving, in this context is, to me, fascinating because it is total and it is unguarded. There are no restrictions here. Okay, in, which is to say what? It is a giving at the deepest level. It is to make oneself utterly and completely vulnerable in a way that you do not in any other relationship in life. Why does God do that? God does that to protect your marriage, to protect your kids, to protect your church, and to protect your culture. Promiscuity destroys, folks. But when a husband and wife are devoted to and committed to the biblical pattern, what happens? God is glorified. And the gifts that He has given to us in this realm are protected. 
Now, it's important also, I think, when you look at this, then to realize why often when bitterness is present in the context of a marriage, it devastates the physical relationship. And that's why God over and over in Scripture talks about what? Live with each other in a loving way, tender, kind, forgiving each other quickly. Don't let the sun go down. That's why the other passages that we talked about before become important here. If I harbor bitterness and resentment towards my wife, there, be, there, there, there comes a lack of interest or a self-interest in this realm. Paul's encouraging us to a radical, sacrificial giving. And I think in this context, as men, we need to understand something. The sexual relationship is not about biology. It's not about simply finding satisfaction. It's about more than instinct. It's about romance. It's about loving. It's about caring. It's about devoting yourself to the needs of each other. One writer wisely made this observation. He said, men, you must touch your wife's heart before you touch her body. And all the women said, amen. Okay? I, sometimes you just got to put it out there. It's not about what you want. And, and all of us know this, okay? All of us know that awkward experience in marriage, and we also know the pleasurable experience in marriage. The one where you get what you want, and what, the one where there is mutual pleasure and satisfaction. That mutual pleasure and satisfaction glorifies God and says to your mate, I'm not using you, I love you. It is by God's design that this gift is given to us so that husband, how you act in the morning, how you come into the house after work does affect how things go later in the night, right? There is a correlation it's an emotional experience for your wife. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter says this, live with your wife in an understanding way. Know her. Don't use her. At a practical level, let me say this. If your body belongs to your mate, then I think that means something like this. That husbands and wives between each other have an obligation to take care of their physical body. Not to make it an idol. Okay, not to be slavish to that, but to do the best you can, all right, to take care of yourself. And, 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 and I think at, at a practical level around the house, when, when we date, what, what's the nature of the relationship? The nature of the relationship is dating that whenever we're going to be together, we look our very best. And then after marriage, what happens? Like, yeah, what happened? I mean, and sometimes you can poke yourself in these areas. Sometimes we're, we're just, we'll, we'll, we, we would never go to, you know, the, to McDonald's or Walmart or the local grocery store looking like we look at home. Right? Well, some people do. I've, <laughs> I've been there. Okay, I'm just saying, sometimes we lose something. We lose that sense of romance that, that is all part of the physical experience that we enjoy with each other. So take care of your body. And, and make yourself representable for your mate. Don't sit around like a slob all the time. Okay? Take some time to take care of yourself. Your body is served. That, there's this reciprocal giving. Do the best you can. Look, I understand, I understand all of the struggles that go with trying to stay in shape and all those sorts of things. Okay? It's, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying become an idol of some kind. Okay? That, that's the world's picture. But to say that respectively deal with yourself in a healthy way. 
Okay? That, that, I think that's important. I think that's kind of bound up in this reciprocal nature of this relationship. And in this giving of yourselves to each other, okay, it honors God when a husband and wife seek mutual pleasure and joy in this gift. Okay, it honors God. Why? Because He gave you that gift for His honor and glory. And that intimacy that you experience in that setting, in your marriage relationship, is a picture, if you will, is a foretaste of a greater relationship that God has for you in the future. Your relationship with Him. But there is an intimacy that you you and I today cannot understand and begin to comprehend. It's a picture pointing forward. So enjoy that picture. In Genesis 2, 2, it says, The man and wife were together and naked, and there was no shame. Hebrews 13, verse 4, Marriage should be honored above all things, and the marriage bed kept undefiled. That is, it is to be protected and enjoyed. Proverbs 5, and verse 15, I won't read through all of it, because some of you would be embarrassed if I read through all of it. But I would encourage you, go read what it says. Talks about a husband and a wife finding mutual pleasure in the physical experience of their marriage for the glory of God. A whole book in the Bible is devoted to this topic, the book of Song of Solomon. Remember finding it as a teenager and being like, what's this doing in here? Okay, and you're like, okay, mom and dad, what would you say to your child? What would you say to them? If they're doing their devotions like you want to see them do, and they stumble across this book, what would you say? I hope you would tell them the truth. That God has given us a story of love in the Bible. That is to exalt the relationship that your mom and dad have. And it is a picture of a greater relationship that one day is coming. Our relationship with Christ. I hope you see that in our marriage. Do you see? We don't have to hide from these things. We don't have to be embarrassed to talk about them. The part of God's plan and design to protect the culture. And, and if you're here this morning and you say, Tim... In our marriage, we have struggled for years in this realm. Okay, here's what I want to say to you. I have a book laying up here. You can come and take a look at it afterwards. Okay? It's called Intended for Pleasure by a guy named Ed Wheat. There are numerous tools out there that you could get to read to help you. And if you struggle in this area, don't let the struggle go on. Find help. Find a mature Christian couple that you respect and go and talk to them. Okay? Because this is, this is, this is not... This is not Optional activity for married people is part of God's design. Which leads us into verse 5. Do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and that only for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. I think some of the translations say prayer and fasting, which kind of gives an indication that there's a block of time that an individual is setting aside to seek after the Lord. Okay, so what is this? What does it mean, do not deprive each other in the realm of the physical relationship? The word literally means don't rob the other person. Don't withhold what is rightfully theirs. What's the principle? A healthy physical relationship will protect your marriage and your heart. So this text says, Don't deprive each other except by mutual consent. That for a time, come back together so that that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
Verses 8 and 9 say this. It says, now to the unmarried and the widows I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I am. But if they cannot control themselves, if there is this abiding desire for a marital relationship and a physical relationship in that context, if that is present, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Okay, so what is the nature of this? It's protective. Okay, it protects your heart. It protects your marriage. And it does that by God's design. I think the end of verse 5 is fascinating. Paul understands that when there is bitterness in the marriage, when there is conflict in the marriage, and that conflict keeps the couple from experiencing physical intimacy together, what happens? Satan finds a place to operate in the context of your home. And when he operates there, he always will bring destruction. Okay, so there's a context. You are to experience unity together, intimacy together as a couple. Okay, when bitterness is present, what happens? There's a driving apart and the evil one has a base of operation, a place to tempt and destroy that which is exceedingly precious to God. Your marriage relationship, which is a picture of your relationship, of our relationship between Christ and the church. So, it is wrong to deprive one's mate of physical pleasure in marriage. That's the simple truth. And it is also wrong for a mate to demand from their partner. A healthy physical relationship, however, does not guarantee the faithfulness of one's spouse. And I think sometimes we need to say that because sometimes people say, you know what, I did everything I could to please my mate. And they still fail. Okay? You do everything you can to fight off the evil one. And then you have to leave it in God's hands. Okay? So I think it's very important that we get this idea of resolving strife quickly so that this relationship in the context of marriage is healthy. The book of Proverbs, I think, alludes to this idea of of satisfaction in the context of marriage as protection. Here's what it says. It says, a full soul loathes the honeycomb, but to the hungry soul, even the bitter thing is sweet. What is he saying? He's saying after Thanksgiving dinner, okay, people could put a whole lot of food in front of you, your favorite food. Now you could put scallops in front of me after Thanksgiving dinner, and guess what? What would normally appeal to me and what I would normally crave and not be able to stop myself from eating doesn't attract me. Okay, in the context of marriage, what's the protection? The protection is if a man and woman are finding sexual fulfillment in the context of the marriage, guess what? They're not out looking. That's the basic general principle that God drives at. Okay, so protect your marriage relationship. Be sure that you keep conflict down. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath so that you can enjoy this physical relationship that God has given as glue, as permanence. And folks, this is the last thought I want to just touch on this morning. Verses 10 through 17 are an argument about the, the and I'm not going to work my way through them, but, but 10 through 17 is an argument about the permanence of marriage and the place of the physical relationship is addressed before it in verses 1 through 9. Okay, so here's the basic principle. The basic principle is that marital intimacy pictures and promotes the permanence of your marriage. Okay, 
And it does it at the deepest level. Remember what the text I alluded to in chapter 6. When a man goes out and hires a prostitute, in some way he has just brought devastation to his marriage relationship because he has become one, though he is one with his wife, he has become one with someone else. And that is the demise. Okay, young people, if you're single and you're dating, okay, you say, Pastor, why, why are people so worried about sexual purity for people prior to marriage? What is that, you know, what's the bit? That's our culture, right? It, it, it denigrates, it mocks a commitment to sexual purity. Why does it matter? Because the physical relationship has stickiness to it. It's a bonding agent by design. Okay, this is why often when couples have dated and been unfaithful sexually with each other, what happens? The breakup is always typically messy. Why? Because they have given themselves to each other in a way that God never intended. So it's important that in the dating relationship, you don't find yourself bonding to someone through the one flesh relationship because you don't know that it's permanence, but you're acting as if it is. Do you see? Now, on the flip side, it's positive in the context of marriage. Why? Because it is a, by design, it is a recommitment ceremony between a husband and one wife. On the day that Rocco and Rachel were married a few weeks ago, is it two weeks now? Three weeks. Three weeks ago. They're still smiling. That's good. All right, three weeks ago, here's what we said. You know, that in the marriage ceremony, you guys have made commitments to each other. In those commitments, you have become one flesh which is partially true, but it is not complete until what? Until that sexual intimacy is experienced and then you become one at a level that is different than when you were pronounced at the marriage altar. It is a deepening of it. And every time a husband and wife enjoy that part of their marriage relationship, what is it? It is a bonding. It is them giving themselves freely to each other. And what you will find in that relationship is what? It has a healing effect on your marriage relationship. That's the design of God. That's the plan of God. And when we honor that design in the God-given context, it is a glorious and beautiful gift from Him. It is a continual renewal ceremony. Which means what? It means this. It means that problems in marriage, in relationship to physical intimacy, are typically symptomatic of deeper problems. Okay, when that area is struggling, usually many other areas are struggling. And usually the, the, the weakness in physical intimacy is symptomatic of a greater breakdown in the relationship. Okay, and a lot of times we're saying, oh, I need, we need therapy, we need that. No, we need to forgive each other. We need to love each other. We need to encourage each other and embrace each other. Get over resentment, get over bitterness so that you can enjoy this recommittal ceremony that God has designed for the marriage relationship. As we close, let me just say this. For young people in our church family, I feel for you in some ways. You live in a culture where there are many temptations in the realm of sexuality. The pressure is enormous. You guys grow up in a visual world. You grow up in a world of beauty or what's called beauty. And you're tempted to think, I have to mimic that in order to be satisfied and happy in my life. And I'm here to tell you this morning, you don't have to mimic the world to be happy. In fact, I would argue the opposite. 
I would argue that mimicking the world is a sure way to find out that the way of transgressors is hard. You live in a world that believes that abstinence and singleness as a package is unrealistic and ludicrous. We live in a world that tries to say this. You know what? You can take those biblical standards, that idea that sexuality is like glue, that it has a permanent effect, that that giving yourself to each other is in some way a a bonding of some kind. No, that's not really true. That's what the world wants to say. You know what happens? Many young people live with broken hearts because they've ignored the God-given standard. That the physical relationship is meant by God to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. In this sense then, the Bible in promoting abstinence is promoting a high view of sexuality. While the person that's carping at your heels saying, what, you don't have a physical relationship with your boyfriend or girlfriend? You've been dating how long? You haven't kissed them yet? You haven't done this yet or that yet? That carping? That you, what do you have to do? You have to assure your heart before God. That what God is promoting is not a downgraded view of sexuality. It is a higher view that sees it as having a very important role in my life. It is not purely a biological relationship. If you're dating, don't act like it's a permanent relationship. And don't let anybody talk you into thinking that it is. As a father with daughters, if you're dating someone, who will not honor the boundaries or standards that you have spoken to them. You know what you need to do? You need to dump them. Maybe smack them first. (laughs) Right? Dump them. Okay? That is not love. Okay? When someone will drag you into an area where you end up with a guilty conscience because part of you was taken away, it is not love. It is selfishness. It is not helpful. It is destructive. Okay, and look, I realize many people make mistakes in this area. Okay, and here's what I'm encouraging you to do. Confess that to God and flee to the biblical norm and standard. Find it to be the protection of God as you move into realms of walking in obedience before him. 2 Timothy 2.22, here's what Paul said. Paul said, flee youthful lust. And young people, you need to protect your hearts for a lifelong relationship. And when you do, the world around you will not applaud that pursuit. But you will be glad you pursued it. So may God help you. Those with regret over the past or in a battle with sexual sin today. Here's what I want you to know. If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse from all unrighteousness and so if you're battling for sexual purity in whatever area it is if you're struggling in your marital relationship just go to God and say God here's my sin I confess this to you I repent of this I turn from this and 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 look part of the repentance is this it's an acknowledgement this is wrong it is turning and embracing the God-given standards and norms if you're married embrace the God-given norm that in marriage A a sexually intimate relationship with a mummy mate is the God-given design. Stop withholding it. Okay? And if you're single, the God-given package for you is singleness and abstinence until the day of your marriage. That is the plan of God. 
seek that, embrace that, love that for the glory of God. I retreat back to verse 19 of chapter 6 as we go to communion this morning. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, who you have received from God? You are not your own. As a result of that purchase, God purchased you body, soul, and spirit. He bought an entire package and redeemed an entire package. And He wants you to give that entire life back to Him for His glory. That's what He desires. And the way you do that is by understanding that you were bought with a price. And the picture here is very simple and very beautiful and leads us right to the Lord's table. The picture is this. It is someone who is in slavery. Someone pays a ransom price and that slave is delivered and set free. Folks, that's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. The wages of my sin, death separation from God. What did Jesus do on the cross? He died and experienced being God forsaken so that I could be forgiven by the cleansing of his shed blood and be set free to what? To pursue a biblical understanding of sexuality, a a biblical understanding of how our life should be lived, whether single or married. And he frees you and empowers you to live and to love that kind of life so that whatever you do can be done for the glory of God. So resist the temptations and embrace the God-given pattern that the Word of God encourages us to. Father, thank you so much for your Word.